3 verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Keep your Bibles open to Romans 3. We'll actually work through all those verses today. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful passage, this wonderful passage that shows us of your plans and purposes. Teach us today how we are to live in response to this, in response to your kind grace towards us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to the last Sunday of 2014 and looking back over this year, I wonder for all of us to look back and wonder, how did your plans and purposes for 2014 go? How did it go? Were all the things that you set out to do this year, did you do them? All your plans and purposes for this past year, did they all go according to plan? Were your purposes and plans fulfilled this year? Well, I suspect for some of us, our plans did go according to plan, some of our plans. Some of our plans we just have to carry into 2015. And I suspect for some of us, there were things that happened this year, things that threw us off course, things that we least expected this past year to have happened to us, to me things that would even test our faith in Christ. So what, your, what were your plans and purposes like this past year? But now let's think about God, God's plans and purposes for this past year. Do you think God achieved what he set out to do this past year? Do you think anything this past year mucked up God's plans? Do you think things caught God by surprise this past year when those terrible things happened to, to us, to me. Did that catch God by surprise? What do you think? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Makes you wonder, what's the connection between my plans and God's plans? Are there any connection there? Is God meant to align his plans and purposes to what I plan and purpose? Or are my plans and purpose meant to align with God's plans and purposes. And if that is so, the second one, if our plans and purposes are meant to align this past year and this coming year to God's plans and purposes, what are they? How do we know what God's plans and purposes are? Well, what we'll be doing today is we'll actually be not talking so much specifics, we'll be taking a step back and firstly we'll be considering God's big plans, God's cosmic plans for all creation not just this past year, not just for this coming year, but for all creation. We want to see the big picture of what God has in store. And so what is that? Well, what do you think stands at the very centre of God's plans and purposes for all creation? What stands at the very centre? Well, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a Christian, 
then we can be absolutely certain of this, that what stands at the very centre of God's cosmic plans for all creation, what stands at the very centre of God's design for all creation, what stands at the very centre of God's purposes of all creation, is the cross of Christ. It's the cross of Christ. That stands at the very centre of God's plans and purposes from beginning to end. The very centre of the heart of God is the cross of Christ. Every Christian should know that. That is what we believe. That is what we uphold. And that is what we need to understand first before we start to consider what, how did I go this year? How were my plans and purposes? How did that go? And what might my plans and purposes be for next year? To understand God's grand cosmic plans first. But as we consider this, why would the cross of Christ stand in the centre of God's plans and purposes? Why would that be at the centre of God's heart? I mean, why would the crucifixion of an obscure Jewish man in the backwaters of the Roman Empire be of any importance at all 2,000 years later? Why would it be of any significance at all 2,000 years later? Was the cross of Christ important or significant because it was a cruel, barbaric, shameful death? Was that why it's so important? Well, it can't be. It can't be because there were thousands of crucifixions around that time. Many people were killed. Many people died by the crucifixion, so it can't be that. Or was it because it was the death of an innocent man? Is that why it's important? Well, it can't be that as well. Jesus was not the first to experience gross injustice and he certainly was not the last to experience gross injustice. Many people have been killed unjustly, so it can't be that at all. And so why does the cross of Christ stand at the very centre of the Christian faith, stand at the very centre of the Bible, stand at the very centre of God's plans and purposes for all creation. You see, from the eyes and from the minds of this world, when they see us Christians, when they see you, and they see that you give your whole life to a man who died a criminal's death, you depend on this man, you submit to this man, you you live for this man who died, that's absurd. That's silliness. That's foolishness. And so Paul writes, it's the foolishness of the cross. And so when you hear these things, you can understand why the cross of Christ can, can be so strange, why it actually does not make sense to so many. It was the death of a Jewish man. But you see, as foolish as this sounds, in the eyes and minds of so many, even our family and friends, it stands at the heart of the Christian faith. It stands at the very centre of what we believe. It stands at the very centre of the Bible. It stands at the very centre of human history. It stands at the centre of the heart of God. You see, if we don't understand the cross of Christ, we won't understand what God's plans and purposes for us are. And so today we'll be looking at this passage, Romans chapter 3, and in many sense this passage has been called the centre of the whole Bible, the very centre of the whole Bible. And so when you understand this, you, in a sense, understand, you get to see into, get a glimpse into the heart of God himself. And so, if you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 3. We'll work through all these verses. So, what we see here is not the foolishness of the cross, but we see the satisfaction of the cross. What that means is what the cross actually achieves, what it does for us, 
and why it's completely and utterly necessary. You see, since the fall, since Adam and Eve, there have, has never been any possibility for any human being that no one has ever had the resources within them to live righteously, that is to live rightly with God in a perfect relationship with God like what they had before the fall in the Garden of Eden. You see, since Adam and Eve set themselves up against God, a heart that was bent away from God, rebelling against God, dethroning God, placing themselves in the place of God, deciding what is right and wrong, this world has been broken and shattered ever since, right from the very beginning. So no one since that time has ever had the resource within them to live as God desired, as God demands. And so from chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, in the book of Romans, Paul was at pains to describe, you know what, all you people, you are all on the same playing field. God is angry with you all. And so in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It is hard to believe. Some people will find this troubling to believe that, that God can in fact be angry with people, that God would even judge people. And so there, ha- there are churches that dropped all notions of a judging God or an angry God or any notion of hell at all. You see, I can't actually understand why you would do that. If you read the Bible, you, you cannot believe that. You cannot see that. For there to be justice, there must be punishment. If there's no punishment, there's no justice. If there is wickedness and sin and evil, that must be punished. Otherwise, there's no justice. You can't have it any other way around. For me to be a just parent to my kids, if they disobey, they need to be disciplined. Otherwise, I'll be unjust. And so much more so with God. And so God's wrath is being revealed against all people. We're all on the same playing field, same level. And so Paul concludes by the end of uh, this, this chapter, chapter 3, in verses 10 to 12, he puts everyone on the same, in the same group and he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. And so this has been the case for every single living being since the beginning, since Adam and Eve, since the fall. Even Abraham, great guy, wasn't he? But he was not a perfect man. King David, great guy, was not the perfect man too. No one had the resource to live righteously, live the life that God demands, live in relationship perfectly with God. But then we get to our passage today. I want you to have a look at that. Chapter 3, verse 21. The first word is extremely important. But, but now, but now in salvation history, but now in redemptive history, but now in the cross of Christ, there now comes a new state of affairs, another way to be righteous. That is what Paul is declaring here. For the first two and a half chapters, he's spending time putting everyone on the same playing field, saying, you're all wicked, God is angry, you'll be judged. But then 3.21, but now in the cross of Christ, things change. Now, you don't need to find that resource within you to live righteously with God. Now comes another way that comes from God, apart from the law. So have a look at verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This is not new. The prophets, the Old Testament, they expected this. 
And so now there's another way to live righteously. You see, from the beginning, right from Adam and Eve, no one has. No one was able to. But now there is now that possibility and it comes from God. It doesn't come from us. And so none of us can go to God and claim, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm all right. I keep to myself. I mind my own business. I don't annoy anyone. I should be acceptable to you, God. You should let me into heaven when we stand before him one day. Well, we can't say that to God because we don't deserve it. We have no resource in us to live righteously. But you see, here, but now, our righteousness comes from God and it is received by faith, by believing in him. And so we see this in the next verse, verse 22. Have a look. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, it's not my effort now. It doesn't depend on my effort. It actually comes from God, this way of living rightly with God. But then, just in case we didn't get that, Paul actually puts it very bluntly now in the next verse. This is the only way you can live with God, rightly with God. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or Australian or American or African, it doesn't matter at all. He says in verse 23, quite bluntly, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, you're all in the same camp. You all fall short of the glory of God. But now what follows, Paul now elaborates on why the cross stands at the centre of God's purposes and plans for all creation. He now shows the richness of what was achieved at the cross of Christ. Often we hear Jesus died for us. There is that. That is true. But there is so much more richness in that when we come to see what Paul goes on to explain here. You see, we see now the necessity of the cross. It was necessary, not a foolish thing. It was no accident that Jesus, this Jewish man, died in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. And we also see here the satisfaction of the cross. It makes sense now how God's justice and mercy can come together. And we see now why it stands at the very centre of the heart of God. And so the, how Paul goes on to explain the richness of what happened at the cross, he uses three illustrations, three aspects of the cross. Firstly, he talks about Jesus' death as being the price for our redemption. The price for our redemption. I'll explain that later. Secondly, he talks about the death of Christ being the propitiation for our sins. I'll explain that later as well. And thirdly, he explains that this is the means by which we receive, we are justified. There is justification. Okay, so three aspects of the cross which shows the richness of what happened when Jesus died. It's not simply just he died for us. That is true. But there is more. So there's redemption, propitiation and justification. Three big words, but I'm sure you've heard of it. You've probably learnt it. Even the little ones are learning it in Colin Buchanan's song. Or anyway, firstly, redemption. Well, the redemption, the idea of redemption comes from the ancient slave market. And how this worked was if you had a relative, a brother, who did something silly, lost all his money and had to sell himself off as a slave to someone else. Now, you as the next kinsman redeemer, you can actually redeem your brother from slavery you can pay the ransom price, which is the, the price to set your brother free. If you love your brother enough, which you should, right? You pay the price so that your brother can go free. That is the ransom price. 
That is where we get the idea of redemption from. And so the cross of Christ, the death of the Lord Jesus, is the ransom price needed to set us free from slavery, to set us free from the, the curse of the fall, from sin. And this is what we see in the next verse, verse 24. Have a look. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, his death was the price for your life. His death set you free from the the curse of sin, from the dominion of death. He purchased you by his death. Jesus' death was our redemption. And so now when we look at the cross, we see that Jesus died for us, but we also see now that his death was actually the price required to set us free, for us to belong to him. And so now that he's redeemed us, if you do belong to Jesus, your life belongs to him. He owns you now. He owns you for his glory, but also for your good. And so when we people talk about our lives being ours, especially Christians, when we talk about our lives being ours, that's nonsensical. Our lives are not our own. We belong to Christ. He owns us. He purchased us by his own death on the cross. And so that's redemption. That's the first image that Paul uses here to describe what happens at the cross. The second image here used is the word propitiation. Now, you don't actually see it in your NIV, but I'll explain that in a moment. The idea of propitiation comes from the ancient pagan world of temple worship. And so in the ancient pagan religions, there were many gods and different gods had, had different domains of power and influence. And so if you wanted a particular god to be kind to you, to be nice to you, to not be angry with you, then you would offer sacrifices to that particular god. And so if you were going on holidays and you wanted a safe trip, you offer sacrifice to that god. If, you, if you're pregnant, you want a big, fat, not juicy, fat, strong baby, then you offer sacrifices to the fertility god. And so you make sacrifices to appease the gods, to pacify the gods. This is where the image comes from, to offer the sacrifice to turn away that God's anger from you and away onto something else. That is what the word propitiation means. But now when we see the Bible using this idea, is this actually what happens with the God of the Bible, that he, he needs to be propitiated? Well, it's not exactly like how the ancient world uh, pagan temple worship worked. You see, in the patient, uh, pagan temples, the people offered sacrifices. It was the people who offered the cows and the bulls and the fruits and the mangoes to their gods to appease them, to make their god propitious. But who offers the sacrifice in the Bible? What do we offer to God? We offer nothing to God. We offer nothing to make him propitious. Rather, it is God who offers his own son on our behalf as a propitiation for our sins. You see, God is rightly angry with our sins. We can't do anything with it. We can't offer anything for it. But God, out of his own love for us, he offers his son as the propitiation for our sins. God makes the sacrifice, not us. So quite different again to pagan uh, temple worship, but it's that idea. And so, you know that famous verse, John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he offered his one and only son. It is him who offered the sacrifice, not us. 
And so John Stott, that great theologian, he says this, it is, the, it is God's wrath which needs to be propitiated, turned away, and it is God's love which did the propitiating. And so God loves us, not because God, Christ died for us, it's not like Christ decided out of, on his own accord, out of his own will, I'm just going to come between God the Father and the people on earth. It didn't work that way. Christ died for us because God loved us. God loves us first. It's out of his love that Christ was sent for us so that his anger might be turned away from us on his own son. And so verse 25, this is what we see. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. That's where we get the word propitiation. The original word is propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And so when you look at the cross now, what do you see? You see that it was the ransom price to redeem us. But we also see that it was a sacrifice for our sins to make God propitious as a propitiation for our sins. So that's image number two. Now number three. Well, why did God do such a thing and offer his own beloved son? Why would anyone do that? Well, it was certainly out of love. We know this already, but it was in fact also demanded by God's own justice. For God to remain just, sin and wickedness and evil must be punished. And so the final image used here is justification. And so we've moved from the slave market idea to the temple worship idea of propitiation and now we come to the courtroom of justification. To be justified means to be declared innocent by God. God declaring to you, you are innocent. You are right with me now. That is a declaration of righteousness. Your guilt has been dealt with by someone else. You see, God has to deal with our sins some way. He can't just turn a blind eye. If we are wicked, evil people, God can't say to us, God can't say to anyone, you've lied, you've hurt people, You've slandered, you've gossiped, you've stolen, you've killed people, but why don't you just change your clothes and we'll call it even? You see, for God to do that, that would be grossly unjust. And so for God to be just, evil, all evil, all sin must be punished. And so that's what he did in his son Jesus. And we read this in the final verses, verse 25, 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So the sins of all the Old Testament faithfuls, Moses and David and Abraham, all those sins were sort of kept until the coming of Christ and it was all laid upon him. So those in the Old Testament, they were saved by the death of Jesus as well. And then Paul goes on. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so now we're in the courtroom. God justifies us, declares to us, you are innocent. You are free from guilt and shame because someone else has bore all those things for you. So the cross of Christ, you see here, was necessary for God to remain just. You can't have it any other way. It stands at the centre of God's plans and purposes for a reason because in it, in the cross of Christ, we have redemption. That's the ransom price paid for us. 
we have propitiation. That was the sacrifice to turn away God's anger from us. And it was also the means by which we are justified. Okay, three big words. Redemption, propitiation and justification. And so that's the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of God. That is what God is doing. That is what God has done. And so when we think about this, far from being a pathetic, foolish, sad event in human history, an insignificant event, we can start to see how the cross of Christ stands at the very centre of the heart of God, at the very centre of God's plans and purposes for all creation. Because it was this event that God brings salvation for us. It is in this event that we can be declared righteous. It is in this event that we can have life with God into all eternity. And it is in this event that we begin to start, we begin to see God's grand purposes for us. See, if the cross of Christ stands at the centre of God's plans, if they do stand at the centre of God's heart, then what place does it have in my plan? As I look back over this year, look back over 2014, the things that has happened, the ups and downs of 2014, and as I think about 2015, how should this influence that? How should this affect that? How does the cross of Christ change the way we think, the things we love and what we do? Well, firstly, we should understand from this that it is God's own Son, Jesus Christ, who stands at the centre of God's purposes. That's a given, right? Jesus stands at the centre of God's purposes, not us. We are not the centre of God's purposes. You see, we humans have this capacity to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. What is God's plans and purposes for me? The centre of God's plans and purposes is Jesus Christ, not us. We get to be a part of that, not us. And so, when we consider the cross now, what do we actually see? When you see what Jesus did for us as the ransom price, as the sacrifice, the one who allows us to be justified, when we see that, what do we see now? Well, I hope we all see our unworthiness, our gross unworthiness that my sins, my guilt, my shame sent the Son of God to the cross. That's how bad my sins are. That's how bad my guilt are. That's how bad my shame are. That it would send the Son of God to the cross. Now, it's a tragic thing for, for anyone to die for us, for, for any other person to die for us. That's tragic enough. But you see, this is the cost of the life of the Son of God for us. That should speak volumes of our unworthiness. That's how terrible our sins are. That's how terrible our weakness and evil are. That it will send the Son of God to the cross. And so when I look at the cross, that is what what I see. I get to know myself. I see how unworthy I am. You see, if you don't actually understand the cross, if you don't see the cross, then this is blunt, but you're actually thinking better of yourself than you ought. If you actually understand the cross, then you see how grossly unworthy you are that your sins sent the Son of God to the cross. You see, no one is going to say anything worse than you than what the cross does. No one. Whatever names people call you, 
whatever things people say about you, nothing's going to be worse than what your sins did to the Son of God. He had to die for you, for your sins. Your sins cost the life of the Son of God. And so when I ask now, what are my plans? What are God's purposes for me? Well, firstly, I need to know how unworthy I am. I need to know that. But here comes the profound thing. When I look at the cross as the centre of God's plans and purposes, not only do I see my gross unworthiness, but now I also see my, my worth in God's eyes. No matter how highly you think of yourself, you're thought more highly than you can ever imagine or dream of because the Son of God would go to the cross for you. Isn't that profound? We see our unworthiness at the cross, but we see our worth in God's eyes, that he would send his beloved son for you, for us. Nothing in all creation tells us more about the heart of God than the cross of Christ. Nothing in all creation tells us more, shows us more of the glory of God than the cross of Christ. Isn't that profound? When I know the cross, I know myself. When I know the cross, I get to know God. I see my unworthiness. I see God's majestic love that he would count me worthy to send his son for me. But now secondly, when we do ask, what are my plans, what are my purposes, what are God's plans and purposes for me? Well, I need to see that if the cross of Christ stands at the centre of the heart of God, the very centre of the heart of God, then it needs to stand at the centre of my heart as well. If this is what God is on about, then it needs to be the thing that I'm on about as well. And so what this means is that what God wants is that our life is to be shaped by the cross. It needs to be cross-shaped. You see, God is not so much interested in whether my plans is to buy a car, buy a house, get a promotion, get a job, get into the course I want, have a boyfriend, have a girlfriend. I mean, they're important things. Don't get me wrong. But what God is more concerned about is that our whole life is shaped by the gospel. Our whole life meaning every little aspect of our life, every little room in our lives shaped by the gospel. And so looking back on this this year, 2014, was my life shaped by the cross of Christ, shaped by the Lord who died for me? And as I plan ahead to 2015, will my life be shaped by the cross of Christ? And so when I do go buy a house, is it cross-shaped? Am I on about building my own kingdom, my own patch, my own domain? Or am, I, am I on about building the kingdom of God? I mean, many of you would know that this year God's been gracious and generous to us. He's provided us a home, which is a total mess anyway, but it's a home that we'll live in eventually. We have to check our hearts whether we're doing this for our own sake, for our own kingdom, or for the sake of God's kingdom, to use it in the service of God and his people. Or when I get a job, or when I, how I conduct my job, is it shaped by the cross? Am I working my role and my, my tasks humbly and faithfully and, and with honesty and integrity to the glory of God? Or am I finding in my job, my, my career, it's not your career, your life belongs to Christ, but am I finding in my job my worth and my identity? That is wrong. Or when I get into a relationship, 
have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, get married this year or next year. In my relationship, am I loving sacrificially? Am I God-honoring? Am I loving Christ? Is it shaped by the cross? Or am I in this relationship just for self-gratification? Or when I spend my time, when I spend my money, is it cross-shaped? Is it just me, just all for me? Or am I being uncomfortably generous? Not just generous, but uncomfortably so. We, we need to be carrying the cross. It needs to be cross-shaped. It is costly. Am I being uncomfortably generous for the sake of God in my time, in my finances? Or does God only get the dregs, the leftovers, whatever I can so that it doesn't affect my lifestyle? And when I relate to people at church, at home, at work, is it cross-shaped? Is it shaped by the Lord Jesus who died for you, who gave up his life for you? Am I being humble, serving, not always seeking my rights, always forgiving, always loving, always compassionate, always merciful, always for the other and not for myself? Or am I just living that selfish life, middle-class Christian selfish life? Just imagine, I want you to imagine this, what our church would be like if every single one of us this coming year, all aspects of our life, every room in our life becomes shaped by the cross of Christ in how we relate to each other, in how we use our cars, in how we use our homes, in how we spend our time, in how we go off on holidays, in where we go off on holidays and how we use our money. Imagine if all of that, every single one of us, all those decisions are shaped by the gospel. That's a taste of heaven. That's a taste of heaven. You see, the kingdom of God that we belong to is cross-shaped, shaped by the cross of Christ. The kingdom was established through the humble sacrifice of the king who died for us, for you. And so the kingdom of God will advance today through humble disciples who remember to carry their cross, not their jacuzzis, not their gold-encrusted cross necklaces, to carry the cross daily. That's how the kingdom of God will advance in this world. This is what it's like for the disciples of Jesus. This is what it's like for disciples of God. It is shaped by the cross. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose for you to live a life that is shaped by the cross of Christ. It centres on the Son, His Son. It doesn't centre on us. And so now, when you think about your plans and purposes for this coming year, whatever they might be, remember the cross. Remember the cross. When we look at the cross, we see our redemption, we see the propitiation for our sins, we see our justification, and we also see the heart of God. This wonderful hymn, which we'll sing later, I'll read the first verse, very powerful. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how unworthy we are that our sins, our guilt, our, our shame would send your dear son to the cross 
but we praise you with all our hearts that you will count us worthy, that we will do so anyway. Help us to live in response that every aspect of our life this coming year will be shaped by the cross of Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.